good morning. Good to see you this morning, and uh, good to be with you. My name is Josh, and uh, Dave, uh, we're just, we're grateful for that opportunity to partner with, uh, with Heartline, and encourage you to check that out if you're unfamiliar with their ministry. It's, uh, it's just a great thing that they're doing in uh, caring for women and for families and dads, and so a worthy thing to get involved with if you're interested. Well, uh, we are in the middle of a short five-week series called Pearl, where we're looking at the strategy of Jesus in evangelism. Evangelism is just helping people find God. And so if you're a Christian, if you've already trusted Jesus, uh, then you also are sent out to, to help others find him, to help others experience his grace and goodness and love like we've been singing about this morning. So if you haven't trusted him yet, uh, you get to kind of sit in on, on us uh, talking about some of these things. And, and I would encourage you to consider these things and consider trusting Jesus for yourself. Uh, but welcome to all of you who are online. Glad you're with us. And uh, my name is Josh. If I didn't mention that, one of the pastors here. And uh, I wanted to take you as we get going on just a brief history journey for our church. Sound good? You know, our church is 35 years old. We celebrated our 35th birthday or anniversary, however you want to say it, a few weeks ago. And uh, in 1986, 86, the, the church was started. Milford School is where our first services were. And then in 1987, that end of the building was constructed, what is now the, the fellowship hall. And um, uh, there was a stage in there, and that was where the church met for a few years. And as we grew, uh, within a short uh, three-year span in 1990, 91, somewhere in that ballpark, uh, this end of the building, all of it other than the commons, was constructed, including the room you're sitting in right now. And with that, something else came along. Do you know what it was? Well, I've got it over here, kind of veiled. It was uh, the original pulpit for our church. Do you like pulpits? Yeah, I kind of like it. You know, pulpits are, um, are usually kind of big, a little bulky. Um, sometimes they're even high and lifted up in the air. And, and part of the reason for that is to hide, the idea was, when they began, was to hide the messenger because there weren't pulpits in the early, early church. It was a couple hundred years later before they made an appearance. But when they did, they, they made them huge and they would, they would hide people so that the messenger didn't get in, way, in the way of the message, right? You'd hear God's word preached. In fact, check out some of these old pulpits. I think these are kind of neat. They're huge, some of these. You thought this one was big. This has nothing on some of these. Uh, in fact, look at these ones. I kind of like these. I don't know what you call the top of that. I guess maybe I called it the hat on the pulpit earlier this service. But I thought, you know, I suppose we could probably get one of those up on the wall, don't you suppose? Maybe I could use that going forward. But, but pulpits are kind of neat, especially in what they symbolize and uh, the, the centrality and authority of God's word that they convey. But some of you, you're thinking already, well, Josh, if you like it so much, why don't you use it? Where's it been? Well, we haven't used it in quite a while. And, and a lot of that, honestly, is, is preference. Um, but there's another reason beyond just that, that preference side, and that's this, that um, I, I kind of felt like when I was preaching behind this thing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's great. Um, 
But I felt like there was just this hindrance, this barrier between you and I. You know, like there was just something in the way. And so even when I did use it early in my ministry, I'd kind of stand off to the side a lot, or I'd be down in front of it. I think I spent more time away from it than I did ever really behind it for that reason. Now, I don't have anything against it. I don't have anything against people who use them and churches that have them. Who knows, maybe the, the guy who replaces me one day will pull it back out and use it. Maybe I'll change my mind and pull it back out and use it. You never know. But I just felt like it created this barrier between all of us. And so after a little while, um, about a year or so, we, we got this pulpit that had a plexiglass front and we used for a number of years. Remember that? And then uh, eventually, as uh, we were heading into COVID and we started doing things on video and online, um, there was kind of a weird glare off of that thing. And so we just went to a simple table. And it just made it simple to be able to just stand and feel like there's nothing between us. Like I can just communicate with you and, and even physically convey that I'm in this with you. Like I, I'm in process myself. I'm learning and growing too. And now Josh, why, you might be thinking, why do you bring all that up? What, what's the point of that in an, an evangelism series? Well, especially when you might just cause a lot of angst of people who wish you'd bring it back out. Well, here's why. We're in this series on evangelism and uh, my encouragement to you as you see this sit here all morning is that as you think about that, as you go to people who are far from God to love them and care for them and help them find Jesus, that you wouldn't be preachy in doing it. You know, that's probably one of the most common mistakes people make in evangelism. They, they go about it and they kind of come off preachy. And if you do that, it's no good. Because essentially what you're saying uh, to somebody that you're trying to reach is, oh person, far from God, <laughs> let me tell you what I know and you don't. <laughs> you know, why don't you just sit there and listen to me talk? When, uh, friends, that can work, but most of the time that doesn't work. Most of the time uh, that and especially, might I add, in our current culture, in our current culture where there are uh, so many things just being kind of preachily proclaimed from both sides in every direction, it's tiring, isn't it? It usually doesn't work. It usually kind of pushes people away and causes them to cease to engage. They don't want to engage with you. They don't want to hear what you know and have to say. I mean, think about it for a second. When was the last time someone came to you and just proclaimed, you know, what they thought about something? Or maybe they posted it on your social media feed or they held up a sign in your face. And what was your response? Was it like, oh, thank you so much. Thanks for setting me straight, showing me what you know and what I clearly don't. I'm so grateful for you. Did you, did you, anybody do that? Yeah, neither does your pastor. I just get, I get riled up. I'm like, really? Come on. That's how you're going to go about this? And you get your feathers all kind of ruffled up, don't you? Well, um, Jesus taught us another way. He taught us a better way to engage with people. In fact, it seems like the, the only people Jesus was ever, you know, kind of preachy with were the people who themselves 
were kind of preachy but didn't live it out. Instead, Jesus showed us a better way to engage people, and he taught us the power of asking questions so that the person we're trying to engage can do most of the talking, not us preaching at them. So we're in this series called Pearl, and I think it's probably good for us just to do a brief review of kind of where we've been and where we're headed. Uh, Pearl is an acronym that, that summarizes Jesus' strategy of evangelism of helping people find God and find faith. And, and it starts with, with P, pray for them. I, I would imagine all of us in this room, we know people who are far from God that we long uh, would, would know the truth and, and come to know Jesus and experience that joy for themselves. Well, it begins with, with praying for them. We spent some time looking at that. And then E, to, to eat with them, spend time with them. And, and one of the best ways to spend time is, is over a meal. Jesus did that often, didn't he? He was... We read in scripture, the son of man came eating and drinking. And he did it so much that people accused him of doing it to excess because he wanted to connect with people. And that comes by spending time with them. Well, as you spend time with them, one of the things you need to develop, like Jesus had, is the art of asking questions. To ask questions, that's the A this morning. And uh, by the way, on... uh, your journey through us through this with us, if you choose to, we have a five-week daily devotional that we've printed for you. And uh, as of the first service, there was only about 10 or so left. So if you haven't gotten your hands on one yet, be sure to do that. Otherwise, you can download a PDF of it online. Um, but you know, uh, when you think about this, this thing of asking questions that we're going to talk about today, do you know who the master of it was? I've already told you. It was Jesus. Friends, it's amazing when you turn to the Gospels and start to compare how many times Jesus asked questions versus how many times he gave answers. I wonder, do you know, in the four Gospels, how many times Jesus asked questions? 307 times. Now compare that to how many times would you suppose Jesus gave answers? I mean, Jesus, he's God, he knows everything. All of scripture's about him. All of this was his idea. I would imagine he gave a lot of answers, wouldn't you? Eight. Eight times. Versus 307 questions by my count. Isn't that crazy? Does that, does that reveal something to you like it does me? That uh, maybe Jesus was showing us something about the, a better way to connect with people is by asking questions and listening and engaging with them rather than just coming in and telling them everything we know. I think it was a brilliant part of his strategy. I mean, I consider some of Jesus' questions here. I'll, I'll uh, read a few of them to you. Um, one, and imagine Jesus saying this to you Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Or this question, this is a good one. Why, why do you doubt? Or what is it you really want? What do you really want? What are you looking for? Another one of Jesus' questions. Another time, uh, this is a good one. He, he said, what, what good is it if you gain the whole world 
But in the process, you lose your soul. One time he asked the guy, um, do you want to be healed? That's a good question. And then, uh, this, is a, this is a good one to ponder. I wonder what you would say. Uh, who's greater, the one served or the one serving? Jesus had asked that question. I'll give you a couple more. Uh, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And then to one of those disciples in particular, to Peter, he asked, do you really love me? Questions kind of stir your heart, don't they? They engage you at a different level than if Jesus just was out giving answers all the time. Questions uh, cause you to engage. Well, in, in our series, we've been studying the example of the Apostle Paul and how the Apostle Paul kind of lived this out in, in his ministry. See, uh, Paul was an evangelist, a church planter, and in the book of Acts, we read about ways that he would go to people who were far from God and help them know about Jesus, come to faith in Jesus, and, and plant churches that would bless their communities and hopefully cause others to, to find faith. Well, um, we're looking at one example in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17. And uh, before we get there, let me just uh, retrace our steps a little bit. We learned that when Paul arrived in Athens, he got there and he, he kind of walked around the city and he, his heart became kind of broken. His spirit was provoked deep inside of him. And it was because as he looked around, he saw all the idols that everyone worshiped, the false gods that, uh, that they were consumed with. And he had great compassion for them. But that compassion didn't just sit as a rock in his gut. It, it caused him to take action like it should us and like it did Jesus, by the way. And so last week we saw that Paul, in taking action, went to this place, <clears throat> excuse me, called the Agora. The Agora, the marketplace, the, the mall, so to speak. Paul goes to the mall and he hangs out, he gets to know people, and we read in verse 17 that he went there day after day, every day he went. So he's likely engaging with the same people over and over every day, just as other people came. And, um, you know, in, in the Agora, they sold food. And so you could buy food to take home and prepare, or you could even buy prepared food and eat it there. So <clears throat> surely on some days, Paul bought some food and sat and ate with people, shared it with them. And, and this spending time in that place was a huge part of his strategy we saw last week. Well, over time, uh, because it takes time, friendships developed. And those friendships then... Uh, led to conversations that went deeper over time and even into spiritual things of great significance. And that's kind of where we left the story last Sunday. So let's pick it up again now in verse 19. In verse 19, we read that, remember Paul was in the Agora. He'd been talking with people, engaging with them. And it says, and then they, the people in the marketplace in the Agora took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Well, uh, that place he was at, the Agora, one thing I didn't mention last week is in that same place hundreds of years prior would have been guys like Socrates, Aristotle, others who would have taught and communicated ideas. And Paul does this and they think so highly of what he's been saying that they're like, you, you, we gotta hear more. And they take him to this place, uh, to the Areopagus. Talk about that in a moment, saying, can we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? 
It's like, this is kind of new. We've heard a lot of things, but we haven't heard this. We've got, we got no more. So um, let's talk about that, or the Oropagus, uh, what this is. Well, first off, uh, here's a picture. This was just kind of a rendering of, of potentially what the, the Agora might have looked like. And up on the hill was the Acropolis, which I think I, I called the Oropagus a couple weeks ago. But the Acropolis and uh, a citadel where um, there was religious worship and other things happening. And then off to the side here was an outcropping called Mars Hill, this rocky outcropping. In fact, uh, here's a picture uh, looking from Mars Hill up at the rest of the Acropolis. And one of the things that happened on Mars Hill was this is where the Areopagus met, or Areopagus, depending on how you want to say it. And they would meet, and uh, they were a legendary council. They would meet, uh, it was a meeting of the brightest minds just to share ideas, the latest ideas. And Paul, due to his compelling conversation over time in the marketplace, was invited to speak to them. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, this, was, this had to be a huge deal for Paul. Uh, can you imagine him just thinking, Lord, wow, you're going you're gonna to put me there to be able to share about the gospel. And so um, Paul does this, and here's a look down at that, uh, at Mars Hill from up on the Acropolis. Well, we've been looking at how Paul and how Jesus, you know, they, they ask questions of others, showing interest in what they believe rather than shouting and, and preaching what they believe. And that's a good route to take. And now we're going to see Paul, when he's invited, uh, kind of take that same route. Now, when he, when he goes to the Areopagus, he can't necessarily ask questions. It's more of, a, of a, uh, a lecture format than it is a dialogue at this point. But, but pay attention to the tone. It's clear he's been asking questions and he's been dialoguing up until this point. So look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very Religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I, I found also an, an altar with this inscription on it. To the unknown God. I even found that, Paul says. Friends, as Paul begins his speech, do you see how others-centered he is? He's engaging them where they are, as they are, not putting a barrier between him and them, but just saying, I perceive that, that you're very religious. And I, I, even, I even found this altar that said, to an unknown God. And he's clearly been engaging and asking questions. And one of the things that tells me is that good questions engage people by showing genuine interest in them. When Paul's up here speaking, he's showing genuine interest in his audience. You know, uh, you have somebody who uh, maybe comes to mind who's far from God that you uh, would long to come to know Jesus. One of your first steps is, is to really ask questions that, it, that show genuine interest so you can get to know them and befriend them. You know, this is evident in Paul's words when he says, uh, I, I walked around and looked very carefully at your objects of worship. He's like, I've been walking around studying you guys. And I'm fascinated with what you believe. I'm so intrigued by what it is you think and what, 
what you uh, spend your time learning about and your ideas. <clears throat> and you know what Paul's doing here? He, he's honoring the people he longs to reach with the gospel, isn't he? He's not made them a project. He's engaged them at a level that shows that they're people with needs and with their own ideas and longings and struggles and stress and everything else. And he's honoring them. This is so important because uh, we need to honor people and treat them as important and respected by asking them questions about their journey, you know? Think about it. Tell me a little bit about your story. Tell, tell me how you, you ended up there. Why did you choose that career? Like, when did you know? Do you like it? Or was there a turn somewhere where you wish you had gone a different direction? Maybe you can sense that by their answer. See, and, and you're just genuinely learning their story and, and honoring them, giving them time to talk about themselves. Why don't you tell me more about that and what you've learned and discovered? These are good questions, aren't they? And, and really, they, they demonstrate, because Jesus did this, it demonstrated his teaching to always put others before yourself, which, as we know, is the golden rule. You know that came from Jesus? He, he said, in everything you do, in everything, excuse me, do to others what you would want them to do to you. Put, put them first. Do you kind of like it when somebody asks a question about you? You get to, to share a little bit about something you're excited about? You know, and you get to engage and tell the story? We all kind of do. Well, Jesus says, we'll do unto others as you would want them to do to you. And asking questions good questions, engage others by just showing this genuine interest in who they are as people, not as projects. And one of the things that you're going to do as you ask questions is you're going to learn their spiritual journey. You're going to learn their spiritual journey. And uh, even before we talk about this, here's, here's a tip to keep in mind. If that person you love who's far from God, their spiritual journey um, doesn't begin and, and hasn't begun with you. Do you know that? Because if we think that, sometimes it might cause us to think a little high, more highly of ourselves, like, like we're in control of this whole situation, and, and, or uh, responsibility that I have to fix this whole situation, and it's all on me. And No, their journey started before you got there. I mean, uh, God's clear that he's been in pursuit of their soul since the very beginning. He, he's been seeking after their heart. Friend, if you're far from God, and you're an earshot of my voice today, in this room, online. You know, God's been seeking you. He's been pursuing you. Could be the very reason you're here today. Uh, so when we ask questions and we take time to learn about somebody, we, we learn about what they've already discovered in their journey because they're already down the road a little ways. You will learn and ask questions about how they came to certain convictions I mean, let's look here at verse 23 again. Let's look at Paul. He goes, <clears throat> I passed along and I observed your objects of worship. I found also an altar with this inscription. We've read this already to an unknown 
God, this is, this is really telling because Paul's recognizing that these people have already been on a journey. He's like, I, I see where you've, you worship already, your objects of worship. I, I see even you have an altar to an unknown God. By the way, here's a picture of it. Um, it's kind of their way of saying when they have this altar to an unknown God that, you know, in our journey, we're excited about what we believe. We've got a lot of objects of worship, but, you know, we also acknowledge there's probably something missing. You know, there's, there's probably a God out there we don't know yet. In fact, it even kind of feels like there's just something we, we don't know yet, like there's something more that we haven't experienced. And in many ways, this was their way of, of saying that. Well, Paul was grateful to learn this part of their story because it, it gave him a touch point with them where, where he could begin to engage at a deeper level. And you know, uh, when you start asking stories of some, or questions of someone about their spiritual journey, you might, be dis, uh, you might be surprised to discover that they've already learned some spiritual truths. They've already discovered some things. God's already been working. Uh, and stuff that's right. Some stuff maybe that's wrong. But if you go in, you know, behind the pulpit just preaching and assuming their ignorance, you might insult them in such a way that they disengage and never want to hear it again. And you miss out on that opportunity to affirm them where they've grown and encourage them. And in fact, uh, dare I say, if you do that, you might even learn something from them. Something in truth or in principle that would actually grow your faith. But let's look back at verse 22, what Paul does. Um, back up a little bit. Paul was uh, standing in the midst of the Oropagus and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. You know, this was showing interest in them, but really this is also kind of uh, complimenting their progress. He, he, was, he was affirming that they had made some progress. You're, you're very religious. You're doing some good things. This is good. He's saying, you know, uh, some people don't even care about spiritual things, but some people just could care less, but and you guys have a genuine interest in this, don't you? Way to go, that's, that's fantastic. He, he's, Paul's just like, you know, I, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm impressed. And, and he, he's complimenting their progress to some degree. And you know, this I think is important because um, if you ever found this, those of you who are followers of Jesus and you've engaged in evangelism at a time and it's become a little bit adversarial, you ever had that happen? Only at Thanksgiving? <laughs> you know, I, I sent a note out to our board a couple weeks ago, just that as, we've been, as I've been preparing for this series and working through the devotional, I was just trying to figure out, even in my own heart, like what is that angst about sometimes of, of engaging with people in evangelism and sharing my faith and that fear? And I, I think I identified it in part as being, uh, you know, Growing up after becoming a Christian, it was, it was kind of implied, I don't think it was ever spoken this way, but almost implied to me that, um, that it was kind of us versus them. You know, I've got all the answers now, I got it right, and they don't. And so it took on this kind of adversarial sort of relationship, you know? But is that the truth? No, it's not the truth, but do you ever feel that? But the truth is, it's not us versus them. It's not adversarial. It's us 
for them. It's us sent to them to love them, to help them find the prize we found. And maybe that helps you just kind of change the dynamic as you think about evangelism. And really, it kind of boils down to this principle that we're to win people. We're sent to win people, not arguments. (laughs) Arguments might be more fun to win in the moment, to make a point, but that's not what we're sent to do. We're sent to win people, aren't we? That's what our approach should be. That's what Jesus was. That's what Paul's is here. Our questions yielding discoveries that we can celebrate with people and encourage them to see what's beautiful in what they've found. Not fighting them. It's not us against them. It's us for them and sent to them. In fact, um, let me encourage you when, you, when you go ask questions of somebody, if you decide to engage on this adventure and you start asking questions, um, try to avoid the pitfall of going, okay, so I'm supposed to ask a question. And then you ask them something like, do you know this? <laughs> and you put them in a corner to where you're asking them a question that just makes them feel dumb because they don't know. Or then you jump back in and immediately fill in the gaps with what you do know. No, get to know them. Ask questions that befriend them. Don't try to stump them. And as you ask questions, one of the things that's going to happen, and one of the things that happens with Paul, is he identifies common ground with the people that he cares deeply about, that he wants to see know Jesus. Because there is a lot of common ground. Probably more sometimes than we realize. Um, Look at Paul as he continues his speech. He says, uh, For as I passed along, I observed your objects of worship, I found this altar with the inscription to the unknown God, and we haven't read this part yet, he said, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's like, guys, your altar to the unknown God? I worship that God too. And I've, I've learned some things about him. I mean, that, that's so, can, can I tell you a little bit about him? And it starts this conversation where we're going to see here in a moment where he begins telling them about his experience because he's taken time to hear from them of their experience. Do you see? You've said, I think there's a God out there who's unknown and you've got an altar to him. And I would agree. Paul says, I, I, there is a God I don't think you've found yet. Paul says, I happen to believe in that God that you've referred to. And he's saying we both believe in him. Let me help you understand more about him. And isn't that powerful just to have that common ground identified? So often, um, people will share their story because of our questions. And then we're able to say, yeah, you know what? I went through an experience just like that growing up or at the last place I worked. Or, you know, uh, I love doing that too. Or... You know, that that really bothers me in the same way. Just something about that, whatever that thing is. And if if we're going to follow and become like Jesus in this, we we need to learn to ask questions like he did, especially when it comes to evangelism and and asking questions. And it's a bit of an art form. And I've asked Isaac to come join me. He's going to help me illustrate this. Come on up, pal. Why don't you give Isaac a hand? Isaac, you want to help me just engage in a little conversation? 
you can kind of stand right there if you like. So uh, when you engage in conversation, and you're really, why don't you scoot back just a little farther, sorry. There you go, perfect. And you, you engage in conversation with them, you know, and you're a little back and forth just to get to know them. You know, hey, hey my name's Josh, what's your name? I told you, yeah, thanks. I should have let you ask. Um, Isaac, uh, where are you from? Syracuse, Indiana. Where are you from? I live in Milford, but I grew up in Iowa. How'd you end up in Syracuse? Um, I was adopted from Seattle and uh, came here. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. You know, um, were you, did I overhear earlier you saying you play soccer? Yeah, I play soccer. Play soccer. Yeah, just if you play. Oh, yeah, I play, play midfield. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means, but my son plays soccer, and he's five, and I just know there's a lot of running, and I couldn't do it. And you see, like, you, you start this conversation, and you go back and forth, and it's, this, it's kind of this art form of, of going back and forth and engaging, and then over time, that could lead to deeper questions, deeper friendship, deeper commitment, but sometimes we tend to rush into conversation <laughs> to share, share everything, everything that we know. And we don't take time really to listen or get to know somebody, we just go after them. Come back here, I wanna to talk to you. Let's be friends. Give Isaac a hand. You know, and sometimes depending on our personality, maybe we can come, ag- come across a little too strong, so we just need to maybe slow down, take a breath. Sometimes we're just anxious because we feel like the pressure's all on us in engaging somebody far from God, and that's not the case. God's already been at work. And you can engage in conversation and celebrate their progress and just befriend them. Everybody needs friends. So... Um, One of the things then that that kind of illustrates also is just that it's good before you go in and correct somebody to connect with them. In fact, long before you begin correcting them, unless there's just a great opportunity, I think the bulk of your time is probably going to be spent connecting with them, earning that opportunity to speak truth as the Spirit leads. So friends, uh, good questions, they engage others by showing genuine interest in them, uh, learning their spiritual journey. And over time, as that friendship develops, you can begin to ask deeper questions that cause them to think more deeply, to think deeper. Uh, Let's look at how Paul does this in uh, verse 24. He had just said, uh, remember, uh, you have this, altered to an unknown God. This is the God I proclaim to you. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about him. The God who, who made the world and everything in it, that's who he is, being Lord of, of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know, um, what Paul's doing here He's making a statement, but in this statement, he's inviting them to reason with him, isn't he? He really is. He's inviting them into deeper conversation. Uh, The God, the unknown God, he's the one who made the world and everything in it. So think with me here for a little bit. Uh, 
he's the Lord of heaven then and of earth if he made it. And if that's who he is, would he live in temples made by a person? I mean, wouldn't he be, wouldn't he be over it? Would he need to be served by human hands? Would, like, like that he needed anything? I mean, he's the one who gives everything to us himself, including life. And do you see what Paul's doing? He's planting questions that cause them to think deeper because he's already spent so much time engaging them in genuine interest and learning about their spiritual journey and his time in Athens. And now when the opportunity presents itself, he's asking questions that cause them to think deeper and that sit with them. Reason with me. As we wrap up, let me just take this pearl analogy one step further. Do you know how a pearl is formed? Um, pearls formed inside of a clam or an oyster. And uh, here's a picture of one that's been opened up. And basically, if, if uh, that clam is in the water and an irritant gets inside of it, you know, when it's closed, and this irritant gets inside like a, a piece of sand or some kind of debris, and it just kind of starts to bug the clam. It gets irritated by it. Kind of like when you get something stuck in your teeth. It's the same principle. And instead of grabbing uh, some floss and a toothpick, the clam starts to secrete this stuff uh, called nacre or nacre. I'm not exactly sure how you say it. But basically what it is is it's the substance that makes up that iridescent interior of its shell. And it begins to secrete this onto that irritant. And over time, it builds up such a layer over that irritant that a pearl is formed. In fact, there's pearl farms where... Uh, People will take clams and put them in these cages, you know, and they insert artificial irritants into all of them, dip them in, drop them in the water and come back in a couple of years and pull them out and harvest the pearls from them. Here's, here's one that's been opened where you can start to see the development of some pearls. Well, you know, as you develop that relationship, you engage genuinely with somebody and show interest in them and listen to them and befriend them and you learn about their spiritual journey and affirm them and find common ground, at some point that relationship's gonna deepen to the point that you can ask a question that might even be a little irritating. It's gonna cause them to think deeper and it might be like that irritant of, of sand or debris that gets kinda stuck in their teeth that they just keep wrestling with and they're not sure what to do with. But over time, the Holy Spirit works in such a way that he uses that question to develop into a, a pearl of faith. Do you see? So this is a slow process, isn't it? Of, of really loving somebody, praying for them, eating, spending time with them, and then learning to ask questions like Jesus does, befriending them. So as, as we wrap, uh, how will you use questions to connect with people? Especially people who are far from God that you care about. And learn somebody's story. Discover their heart. Eventually, uh, bring in questions that cause them to consider spiritual things. And I think you'll be surprised at what, not you do, but what the Holy Spirit does over time, potentially to grow that pearl of faith in Christ. Let me pray.